This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So I've got to say, this is probably one of my favorite stories of the year so far, because need I remind you that the entire LGBTQ plus groomer narrative came directly out of Florida as a result of Ron DeSantis signing the Don't Say Gay bill into law. That bill supposed that Basically, any and all exposure towards LGBTQ plus educators constituted grooming because if kids found out that gay people exist or that one of their, you know, um, friends had same sex parents, well, that would be grooming them into the LGBTQ plus lifestyle. So this whole current discourse surrounding queer people being groomers and predators is because of Ron DeSantis. And I'm happy to report that that narrative is coming back to bite DeSantis very hard. So lately, Trump has been attacking DeSantis pretty regularly. He called DeSantis a rhino and a globalist the other day. But here's an attack that mm, is raising some serious questions about whether or not DeSantis himself is a groomer. Trump shared this photo on Truth Social of Ron DeSantis, which reads, here is Ron DeSanctimonious grooming high school girls with alcohol as a teacher. And he adds, that's not Ron, is it? He would never do such a thing. Now, in a separate post about the same topic, Trump says, no way, in a quote tweet, uh, from someone who explains Ron DeSantis was having a drink party with his students when he was a high school teacher, having drinks with underage girls and cuddling with them certainly looks pretty gross and aphibophilia-esque. Now, believe it or not, this photograph, which is presumably of Ron DeSantis, was shared before. So back in October of 2021, the Midas Touch actually shared this photograph and they linked to an article written by Steph Basil of Hill Reporter, which alleges after college and before law school, Ron DeSantis spent a year teaching history at a high school in Georgia. According to a source with close knowledge of the matter, during that time, he was photographed partying with underaged students. Now, the article continues here. Darlington is a boarding and day school for grades pre-k through 12. In 2001, when DeSantis joined the staff of the high school, he'd have been in his 20s with college and work in politics already under his proverbial belt. His students would have been high school co-eds, teenagers, some of whom would have been living on campus. According to our whistleblower, he had a reputation among students for being a young, hot teacher who girls loved, and the girls in the photo are believed to have graduated in 2002, making them seniors at the time. Now compare that photograph of Ron DeSantis allegedly partying with under age girls with this photograph from the yearbook at the school where he taught uh, you can see that he has the same haircut and it has not been confirmed that the individual in that photograph is Ron DeSantis, but obviously it looks just like him. Now, I have to emphasize that this allegation must be taken with a grain of salt. I, for one, have never heard of Hill Reporter, and it hasn't been confirmed where the girls in that photograph got the alcohol or whether or not they actually were underage, because as a high school senior, you could be 18 still. Very creepy if those were indeed high school seniors, even if they were of the legal age and Ron DeSantis was their teacher, because that creates a really bad power imbalance. And overall, it is creepy. But 
We don't have confirmation here. However, what we do know, according to a New York Times report, is that Ron DeSantis did indeed develop a reputation as a high school teacher. We're not really going to get into this. It's a lengthy piece. But basically, while he was a teacher, one student believes that he treated her worse specifically because she was black and even accused him of passive racism and claims that he taught Civil War history in a way that seemingly justified slavery. And that sounds very much like Ron DeSantis. It seems like he hasn't changed. Now, that obviously doesn't validate the groomer allegations, but it does speak to a long history of Ron DeSantis making unethical decisions, which kind of lends credence to the possibility that maybe that was him in that photo. Maybe those were underage girls, although we really don't know, to be clear. But I think that because Trump shared that photograph, it is going to prompt other media outlets to try to corroborate this claim made by the whistleblower in the Hill Reporter piece. And it's bad, bad news for Ron DeSantis. And I've just got to say, I love this. I absolutely love that he's the one being accused as a groomer because, again, he's the one who created all this groomer discourse around LGBTQ plus people. And it's coming back to bite him in the ass. But when you start throwing out allegations, well, you better make sure that those allegations aren't confessions, Ron DeSantis. Now, what makes this story additionally interesting is the fact that this isn't necessarily, strategically speaking, the best line of attack for Donald Trump, given that Ron DeSantis has endless ammunition against Trump being not just a groomer, but a full-on sexual assaulter. As Insider explains, at least 26 women accused President Donald Trump of sexual misconduct, including assault, since the 1970s. Trump has broadly dismissed the allegations, which include harassment, groping, and rape, as, quote, fabricated and politically motivated accounts pushed by the media and his political opponents. In 2016, he promised to sue all of his accusers. In some cases, Trump and his lawyers have suggested he couldn't have engaged in the alleged behavior with certain women because he wasn't physically attracted to them. Additionally, a New York judge ruled that a lawsuit by writer E. Jean Carroll, who's suing Trump over an alleged rape and subsequent defamation, can go forward because Trump's petition to dismiss that lawsuit has no merit, according to this judge in New York. Now, there's also him wishing Ghislaine Maxwell well, him partying with Jeffrey Epstein back in 1992. And as you can see from this video, they're both oogling women together, and it's just deeply unsettling and creepy, especially given the plethora of allegations against him, literally more than two dozen. And I'm not bringing up Trump's allegations to defend DeSantis, right? But I'm trying to demonstrate here that Trump, by opening up this can of worms, is also kind of subjecting himself to additional allegations. Uh, but I think that, or not necessarily allegations, because those are already out there, but additional scrutiny. Uh, but I think that Trump probably thinks, well, I already survived these allegations before, so I can survive them again. However, DeSantis has not been able to really weather this storm because that article by Hill Reporter didn't get much traction. So perhaps just even if they're able to debunk it, just the mere fact that additional news outlets are going to report about this allegation against DeSantis because Trump raised the salience of it and apply more scrutiny scrutiny to it, you know, that is going to be bad for DeSantis. And even if it does get debunked by media outlets, which it seems pretty credible, although we don't know yet, we need a real journalist to kind of vet these claims uh, or more journalists, I should say, because I'm not familiar with Steph Basil, who wrote that article. But we need more journalists, I think, to vet these claims, right, and see whether or not this is actually accurate, the timeline lines up. And if that is indeed Ron DeSantis, which it pretty much seems like it is him. Uh, but it doesn't really matter if somebody says, no, this is actually isn't Ron DeSantis because Trump 
is a liar, so he'll lie anyway. Now, it seems like that is Ron DeSantis, though. Either way, I love that this is getting really ugly. Ron DeSantis hasn't officially even thrown his hat into the ring for the GOP primary in 2024, and it's already getting really, really ugly. But I've just got to sit back and um, enjoy it. Because, again, Ron DeSantis essentially revived the gays are pedophiles trope in 2022. And for that... The damage that that caused is irreparable to the LGBTQ plus community because people believed his lies. In fact, a majority of Democrats, according to one poll, believed that the don't say gay law was justified. So all the damage that he's done to smear others, I'm actually glad to see karma catch up with him in this instance where now he's being accused of being a groomer. And it seems like the evidence that we have at this time is pretty cre credible. You at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. You know, it means if, if Congress doesn't keep the programs the way they are, they'd go away. Other Republicans say, I'm not saying it's a majority of you. I don't even think it's even a significant. But it's being proposed by individuals. I'm not politely not naming them, but it's being proposed by some of you. Look, folks. The idea is that we're not going to be we're, we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. <laughs> Folks. That right there was probably my favorite moment of the entire State of the Union address by President Joe Biden because he did something that he doesn't do enough, and that is call out the extremism of Republicans. And this moment was crucial because he kind of got them to show their cards. So you saw the responses when he said that they want to cut Social Security, and they were just indignant. They feigned outrage. You know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mike Lee in particular, their responses were um, interesting to me, especially Mike Lee's. But Marjorie Taylor Greene throughout the entire State of the Union, you could hear her screaming at joe biden for various reasons and it was just genuinely embarrassing unhinged and trashy but exactly what i'd expect from marjorie taylor green but um she responded to questions about why she chose to call out joe biden and here's what she said you know what people are pissed off and for the president of the united states to come into the people's house and lie like he did about the economy the border and then act like he's terrified of china and unwilling to talk about the fact they spied on us last night yeah he he got exactly what he deserved and i am not sorry one bit and i don't think speaker mccarthy is upset with any of us for, for expressing our views and being unwilling to allow the president to lie. What am I going to do? Stand up and give golf claps? No, thank you. I don't clap for liars. I love how Marjorie Taylor Greene is calling out somebody else's lies while not being aware of the irony here. She's one of the biggest liars. And maybe she's not even lying. Maybe she's just genuinely misinformed about 99.9% .9 of the issues that she talks about. Either way, 
what she did was effectively turn the State of the Union into the Jerry Springer show. And she did this last time with her and Boebert heckling Joe Biden, if you'll all remember that. Uh, but it's not that I am inherently against heckling the president during the State of the Union. You know, I don't care about civility or decorum, but what I care about is why you're heckling the president. So, for example, if Democrats during Trump's State of the Unions would have heckled him for the terrible things that he said, I would have liked that. So I'm not against the heckling. It's me being against the dumb things that she's choosing to get outraged about. And Mike Lee, you saw that he was incredibly indignant at Biden calling out Republicans response or calling out Republicans wanting to cut Social Security. Now, it's funny that he, of all people, would feign outrage considering the explicit things that he said about Social Security. So this video was put together by the Midas Touch where they juxtapose his reaction with things that he said about Social Security. And you, you just you can't come back after you've said this, like you can't pretend to support Social Security after you've been filmed saying this. It will be my objective to phase out Social Security, nice. to pull it up by the roots and get rid of it. Um, people who advise me politically always tell me that's dangerous. And I tell them, in that case, it's not worth my running. That's why I'm doing this, to get rid of that. Medicare and Medicaid are of the same sort and need to be pulled up. He wants to pull Social Security up by the roots and get rid of it. I mean, he's just saying it. Of all the Republicans who talked about the variety of ways that they want to undermine Social Security, Mike Lee should be the least offended by Biden's remarks given what he said. And just pause for a moment. Don't ever let this fact be lost on you when we're talking about how the GOP wants to cut Social Security. That's your money. If a bank were to just take the money that you deposited and give it to rich people or spend it on something, you would be outraged, right? You'd view that as theft. So conceptually, we need to think about what the Republicans are doing as theft as well. If you saw Mike Lee on the streets and you walked up to him and you snatched his tie or you stole his watch, I'm not saying that you should do this, but if you did that to him, if you stole from him directly, he would be outraged and justifiably so. But when it comes to you, since you're a peasant, since what you want doesn't matter, since your money is less important, then he's perfectly fine effectively doing the same thing to you, stealing from you. And look, it's not just Mike Lee who has proposed cuts to Social Security. CNN reporter Daniel Dale reminded everyone of Senator Rick Scott's plan to sunset all federal legislation, which was so unpopular that Mitch McConnell even had to come out and denounce that plan because it would include Social Security as well. And let's be clear, Mitch McConnell wants to cut Social Security, but he knows that you have to uphold this facade that Republicans don't want to cut Social Security because their base will never let them get away with that. Now, there's more. As Common Dreams explains, beyond Scott's plan, the Republican Study Committee, the largest caucus of House Republicans, released a budget proposal last year that advocated gradually raising the retirement age, a change that would cut Social Security benefits across the board. The Washington Post reported last month that some House Republicans have resurfaced the above plan and other possible changes, including bipartisan trust fund commissions in recent days as they push for far-reaching federal spending cuts in exchange 
for any agreement to raise the U.S. debt ceiling. As part of a speakership deal with far-right House Republicans, McCarthy agreed to advocate for a cap on federal spending at fiscal year 2022 levels, which would entail deep cuts to education spending, public health programs, and other critical areas. So let's be very clear. These people are liars. The Republican Party is lying to you. And the only reason why you saw that strong reaction is because they were called out. They absolutely want to cut Social Security. They've been broadcasting it for decades now. But they know that they have to uphold this facade that they want to protect Social Security because it would be deeply unpopular if they just said what they wanted to do, which is why we always have to catch them saying it behind closed doors. Now, Biden actually got them to applaud Social Security once he kind of backed them into a corner. So let's watch that. As we all apparently agree, Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now. Right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. We got unanimity. Social Security and Medicare are a lifeline for millions of seniors. Americans have to pay into them from the very first paycheck they started. So tonight, let's all agree, and we apparently are, let's stand up for seniors. Stand up and show them. We'll not cut Social Security. We will not cut Medicare. Those benefits belong to the American people. They earned it. And if anyone tries to cut Social Security, which apparently no one's going to do, and if anyone tries to cut Medicare, I'll stop them. I'll veto it. And look, I'm not going to allow them to take away, be taken away. Not today, not tomorrow, not ever. But apparently it's not going to be a problem. That was actually well played by Biden, strategically speaking. He got Republicans to go from booing him to applauding him when he says that we should protect Social Security. They know they have to uphold that facade. But here's where Biden can really pin their balls to the wall, for lack of a better word. Call their bluff right now. And there's a way that you can do that. As Nancy Altman, the president of Social Security Works, suggested in an op-ed for Common Dreams, the White House should now release a plan to expand Social Security and call on Republicans to release their own plan to protect Social Security. And then you let the American people decide who's actually telling the truth. Exactly. Now, the Republican Party, they don't actually want to protect Social Security. And I would bet that they wouldn't go along with the White House plan to do just that. There's an easy fix if you want Social Security to remain solvent for decades. You lift the cap on taxable income. But Republicans want to create the sense of urgency and false sense that you're going to lose your Social Security if reforms aren't made immediately, because that's the ways that they're going to undermine Social Security, right? They create this sense of, oh my God, it's going bankrupt. We have to do something. We have to act and take drastic measures to protect the program when we all know that the fix is really simple. So if Biden were to propose lifting the cap on taxable income, which would make Social Security solvent for decades, they wouldn't go along with it. We know that they're lying. So I think that that was well played by Joe Biden here. Now, moving on, I want to talk about another instance where the State of the Union essentially devolved into the Jerry Springer show, where Mitt Romney actually confronted George Santos on camera. And we didn't know what was said at the time that this was caught. But we now know, thanks to George Santos, detailing this exchange with the reporter. So Mitt told him, you don't belong here. Santos responded by saying, go tell that to the 142,000 that voted for me. Mitt Romney said, you're an ass. Santos said, you're a much bigger asshole. I love it. I love this so much. You can tell 
that Mitt Romney made some remark to George Santos, and I'm glad that he called him out. I don't like Mitt Romney, but I don't like George Santos either, so I love whenever these goons fight each other, but Mitt Romney explained why he decided to confront George Santos uh, afterwards when reporters asked him about this. You just said you don't belong here. Yeah. Why, why, why did you, you say, say that? To I didn't expect that he'd be standing there trying to shake hands with every senator <laughs> in the President of the United States. Uh, given, given the fact that he's under ethics investigation, he should be sitting in the back row and staying quiet instead of uh, parading in front of the uh, president and, uh, and, and people coming into the room. He says he, uh, you know, that he embellished his record. Look, embellishing is saying you got an A when you got an A minus. Lying is saying you, you graduated from a college you didn't even attend. And, and he shouldn't be in Congress. And uh, no. they're going to go through the process and hopefully get him out. And uh, but he shouldn't be there. And, and uh, if he had any shame at all, he wouldn't be there. Why did, did you, you make him? a point to say that, though? I mean, you went, I mean, it was kind of out of your way to. to well, he was say standing that. right there in the aisle, shaking hands with everybody. Did he respond to you? Uh, he, he may have. I didn't hear Are anything you he said. That Kevin McCarthy is not calling him to resign. Yes. Well, so in case you didn't hear it, he was asked at the end there if he was disappointed that Kevin McCarthy didn't call on George Santos to resign, and he said yes. So, yeah. Now, uh, George Santos was not done with Mitt Romney because he decided to snipe at him via Twitter, writing, hey, Mitt Romney, just a reminder that you will never be president. Look, I, I wish that Congress was comprised of uh, politicians that actually cared about anything other than their own careers and petty bullshit, but this is what we have. We have a bunch of lull cows that were forced to milk to distract us from the fact that Congress is sitting idly by as multiple crises go unaddressed. And it's a sad fact, it's dystopian, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll still enjoy watching them fight each other any day of the week. Now, if I can take a moment to just talk about Biden's State of the Union, I think that overall his speech was pretty good. Um, every single State of the Union speech is bad. Every State of the Union speech that I've ever heard, I have been unimpressed with. This one is no different, but out of all of the unimpressive State of the Union speeches, this one is probably the best. And I say that specifically because if you are a normie and you don't really follow politics too closely, I think that hearing Biden say populist things like bringing jobs back that were shipped overseas, manufacturing in America, uh, buying America first, I think that these things are going to resonate with the American people. I think that him talking about the variety of ways that corporations are screwing working class people, I think that that is going to land well with normal voters. Now, currently, polling says that he's not doing too well. I would predict that maybe he gets a little bit of a bump because of that speech. And I think, you know, it's it's surface level things. But if you go a little bit deeper, you'll see that all of the things that Biden is proposing it doesn't go far enough when he talks about lowering the cost of healthcare. I'm sorry, but if we lived in a sane world, you would be calling for Medicare for all. He talks about how we should celebrate capping the cost of insulin for seniors on Medicare. I'm sorry, but if we lived in a sane world, we would cap the cost of insulin for everyone and go further than that. Just make it free because guess what? We're the richest country on the planet and we can afford to do that. Aside from that, you know, the American exceptionalism, 
was present and insufferable. The Republicans were insufferable, heckling him at the dumbest moments. That's not to say that Biden should not have been heckled for a couple of things that he said, but they choose to heckle him for the dumbest reasons. For example, when he's talking about fentanyl, what do they do? They say, oh, close the border. They all scream in unison, close the border, as if he's not doing the exact border policies that Trump was doing. So they're all disingenuous, both Republicans and Democrats. But when it comes to who actually is closer to the American people, at least rhetorically speaking, I think that Biden made it clear that he is trying to appeal to normal working class people. Now, his actions don't line up with that rhetoric, but still, when it comes to overall appeal and how this speech is going to be perceived, I think that it's going to land pretty well. Either way, it was a show because Republicans made it that way, but at least it was a little bit entertaining, so uh, maybe we'll thank them for that. Either way, um, it was uh, an hour and a half or so that I wish I could get back, if I'm being perfectly honest. Well, I'm sure that you'll all be surprised to know that conservatives once again are outraged over something completely insignificant. This time, they're mad about a Grammy performance by Sam Smith and Kim Petras. Now, unfortunately, I can't play the video clip for you. I'll link to it down below if you want to watch it. But you can kind of see from the photograph why conservatives were angry. He's wearing a devil hat, and they were very clearly going for a satanic-esque aesthetic. Ross Story explains, during the award ceremony, Smith and Petras performed their song Unholy, with Smith clad in a top hat featuring red devil horns and surrounded by red-robed female dancers. Now, on top of that, there were flames on the stage, the lighting was red, so they were very clearly going for that type of hellish vibe, and conservatives were outraged because they thought that it was promoting Satanism. Now, this isn't the first time that musicians have used this aesthetic and it's not the first time more specifically that lgbtq plus artists in particular have used this type of imagery now for those of you who don't know sam smith is non-binary and kim petras is transgender now lil nas x if you'll recall from like a year or two ago was also in hot water with conservatives because he did the same thing so in his music video call me by your name if you'll remember that when we talked about it on the show, actually, because once again, conservatives were outraged about that. Uh, he gave Satan a lap dance. Now, I don't necessarily know if this is applicable to this particular performance or the meaning behind the song, but when LGBTQ plus artists use this type of hell aesthetic, there's usually more significance behind that meaning. So I'm, I'm just paraphrasing what Lil Nas X said, but what he said was really important. So he said that throughout all of his life, he was taught to hate himself for being gay. He was told that he would burn in hell for all of eternity if he accepted himself. So when he finally decided to stop hating himself and embrace who he was, he kind of accepted his fate. You know, if conservatives said, you're going to go to hell for being gay. Then he said, all right, I'm going to rock it. So in his music video, he owned it. He slid a stripper pole uh, or slid down a stripper pole all the way down to hell. And he gave Satan a lap dance and seduced him because that's him saying, I don't care what you tell me. If this is my fate, it's not going to change who I am to my core. And if I'm going to go to hell, fine, I'll be myself there too. I'll own that too. So I can't necessarily speak to the message behind this song, but when queer artists use this type of imagery, oftentimes there is more broadly a, a meaning behind it. But either way, conservatives were outraged because it was pretty explicitly satanic. And the responses here are genuinely unhinged and especially hilarious because there was an advertisement from Pfizer also right after this performance. So because of that, they're basically saying this is confirmation 
that the COVID-19 vaccine, or I shouldn't say that they're saying this, they're implying that this is confirmation that the COVID-19 vaccine is the mark of the beast, yada, yada, yada. But I'll just shut up and we'll read some of the responses because these are genuinely hilarious. Benny Johnson says, the Grammys have gone full on Satan worship on primetime TV. Don't believe me? Watch. And he links to the entire video. <laughs> and look, I've got to say, I couldn't find the video clip until I saw his tweet. So I appreciate him linking to it. I'll link to his tweet if you want to watch it for yourself down below. But on top of that, Liz Wheeler writes, don't fight the culture wars, they say. Meanwhile, demons are teaching your kids to worship Satan. I could throw up. And Ted Cruz responded to that saying, this is evil. Charlie Kirk says, the devil brought to you by Pfizer. And Matt Walsh chimed in saying, it's not surprising to see a satanic ritual at the Grammys. Satanism is the worship of the self. Much of modern pop music is satanic in this sense. Leftism is satanism. The only change is that now they're being more explicit about it. Now, let me just pause right there. So the reference to the satanic ritual is hilarious because the female dancers referenced in the Ross Story article were like holding hands and dancing around Sam Smith as they were singing. And because of that, they're saying that was tantamount to a satanic ritual. But I just love that Matt Walsh here is pretending as if he is some sort of authority on what is and isn't moral. When last week he quite literally called for doctors who give gender affirming care to trans people to be jailed indefinitely and if he had his way executed. So I don't think that he's the best judge on what is and isn't moral, but nonetheless, there's more tweets and they get more unhinged from here. Ben Q says, I know we on the right probably use the word satanic too often, but this performance from Sam Smith is literally a tribute to Satan. <laughs> Robbie Starbucks says, Sam Smith's satanic performance at the Grammys ended with a Pfizer commercial. You can't get it more on the nose than that. Pfizer and Hollywood deserve each other. And last but not least, this one is by far my favorite. Hollywood is infiltrated by satanic radical left lunatics. They cancel Kanye West over his opinion and his net worth drops by over 50%. Meanwhile, Sam Smith is allowed to have a satanic performance at the Grammys that is sponsored by Pfizer. Make it make sense. Make it make sense. I shouldn't have to make this make sense for you, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm a very kind individual. The reason why one is okay and the other isn't is because satan who they are allegedly paying tribute to here is a fictional character whereas hitler who kanye west praised repeatedly is not hitler is responsible for the death of millions of innocent people so that's why praising one is different than praising the other these two examples are not the same it's a false equivalence do you understand this right here is subjective if you are religious then odds are you're going to find it offensive if you're not you're going to find it completely banal as i do because i don't believe in religion i don't believe in satan that's a fictional character objectively speaking there's no evidence that satan is real so you know these conservatives of course they were going to find this offensive and i think that part of the reason why they did this aside from the deeper significance we we talked about the possibility of it uh, of it having is because these types of satanic visuals it gets attention it's not the first time mind you that musicians have adopted this aesthetic so in 1983 there's a group of gender non-conforming musicians named motley crew maybe you've heard of them now they released a song called shout at the devil and their vocalist vince neal said that people thought that they were actually satanic and angry but ultimately they didn't really care because they were just having fun and he also noted that the satanic imagery got them more attention so it was kind of a win-win-win in fact tom taylor at far out gave a thorough 
breakdown of the history of conservative outrage over rock and roll, with the biggest examples being Judas Priest, Gene Simmons from Kiss, and even Elvis being accused of Satanism. So, Satanic Panic is one of the oldest triggers for puritanical conservatives, right? It's a tale as old as time. Usually, the female artists get slut-shamed, while the male artists are accused of promoting Satan. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, I think it was like 10 years ago, when everyone was freaking out because Miley Cyrus was twerking. Oh no, she's corrupting the youth by twerking. So there's always going to be some outrage by evangelicals and conservatives because they view this as like the youth being corrupted. Whereas Ted Cruz, if you, you know, ask him what he listened to when he was younger, it was probably Motley Crue, it was probably these rock and roll artists who conservatives back then, when he was growing up, deemed satanic as well, although I don't know, to be clear. But either way, um, of course, they were going to be outraged by this. And if they weren't outraged by the satanic aesthetic, they would be outraged because this is two members of the LGBTQ plus community being unabashedly proud of who they are with a very important message. Now, I thought this was really cool because they actually made history at the Grammys. Not that I am that concerned with the Grammys, but I do think that visibility matters. Like, out queer people winning Grammys, winning awards, that isn't a sufficient substitute for equality, obviously. But that heightened visibility is really important for LGBTQ plus youth. HuffPost explains Smith and Petras, who took home the Grammy for best pop duo slash group performance for their song Unholy, made LGBTQ history at the ceremony. Smith, who has won Grammys in years past, became the first out non-binary artist to win the award, while Petras, a first-time Grammy nominee, became the first out trans woman to win the award. Petras, who received a standing ovation during her speech, thanked the incredible transgender legends before her who kicked open doors for her, including Madonna and the late Grammy-nominated artist Sophie. She also gave a shout-out to her mother during the emotional speech. Quote, I grew up next to a highway in nowhere, Germany, and my mother believed me that I was a girl, and I wouldn't be here without her and her support, Petra said. Yeah, so that's really encouraging to hear. Conservatives may denounce this performance as satanic, but what they're doing objectively is a net good, because for young non-binary people, young trans people to see that you can make it in this world, Despite all of the stigma surrounding your identity, despite all of the discrimination, that is very, very encouraging. Times are changing and young LGBTQ plus people, young non-binary people, young trans people can see there are people just like me and it's not weird. They can win awards, they could be embraced by millions of fans and that is really, really important. So regardless of what you think of the song or the aesthetic, what Sam Smith and Kim Petras are doing here is actually really meaningful to young LGBTQ plus youth. And I'm really thankful that there's more representation for queer people in media and in culture, because without it, you would lead to more people hating themselves, which is ultimately what conservatives want. But either way, conservatives are going to cry and you can't like try to tailor your performance or your art or even your rhetoric towards what will or won't appease conservatives because by definition they're hate mongers they're going to hate you regardless so all you can do is be yourself embrace and celebrate who you are and if they're going to be mad let them be mad either way they're losing the culture war regardless of how much they cry satanic panic and evidence of that is that they've been crying about the same bullshit for decades now literally and they're still losing. So let them cry. And I say it's really great that Sam Smith and Kim Petras 
are being themselves and proud of who they are and comfortable in their own skin. I think that's wonderful. And I'm glad that trans youth and non-binary youth can look to them as examples. Conservative commentator Matt Walsh has become increasingly explicit in his eliminationist and pro-genocidal stance towards trans people. And this is really important because it's evidence that trans people were not being hyperbolic when they explained how severe and toxic the climate is in the United States with regard to trans issues. And this isn't just any individual. This is somebody with a massive platform who has the ears of lawmakers. And just last week, he called for the execution of doctors who provide gender-affirming care to trans youth. Let's listen. Trump also says, uh, as he goes on to say, that, the, that he would direct the Department of Justice to investigate hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, uh, doctors, to find out if they've been involved in a cover-up of the horrific long-term side effects uh, and, uh, of gender transition drugs and surgeries. Now, the answer, of course, is that, yes, they have been covering those things up as any genuine and thorough investigation will clearly show, which is why the next step under a Trump administration or any Republican administration should be to arrest the culprits, the um, hundreds and hundreds of them, if not thousands of them, and throw them in federal prison. Now, this can't be a matter of simple fines and financial penalties. I mean, that should be part of it. But uh, the only real recourse here, the only semblance of justice would be prison sentences, very long ones. Now, if it were up to me, we, you know, we'd go further than that. As far as I'm concerned, mutilating and castrating children should be legally considered a capital crime and it should earn the prescribed penalty for such crimes. But if we can't have that, then prison will have to suffice. These are all very positive developments. He's just saying the quiet part loud. Now, Matt Walsh may be a monster, but he's no dummy. He knows what's entailed with gender-affirming care. He knows that you don't qualify for bottom surgery until you're 18. And even then, it's difficult to get it since it's cost prohibitive. And when it comes to mutilations, I mean, he doesn't care about the actual mutilations taking place in the United States. More than 50% of male infants, at least as of 2010, are given medically unnecessary circumcisions, and he says nothing about that. Additionally, he doesn't condemn the cisnormative surgeries given to intersex infants with ambiguous genitalia. That is tantamount to mutilation, and he says nothing about that. So he doesn't care about mutilation and he doesn't care about kids. He is lying to his audience so that way when they hear the words gender affirming care, they're primed to think mutilation. It's a propaganda tactic. And he is deliberately lying on a number of issues, but we know that he's lying, not just because what he says is factually incorrect, but because he was caught lying on the largest podcast in the world, no less. How many people have had this done? Depends on what, I don't think we have exact numbers, but it's, if we're talking about the drugs, it's, I mean, millions. Um, Are you talking I, about hormone blockers? Yeah. Millions blockers of kids have been on hormone blockers, really? Uh, I, I'm sure someone's going to fact check me on that, but my, my, my guess is that we're, in, we're into the millions now at this point. Yeah, that would be my guess. It I'll says over the last five years, there were at least 4,780 adolescents who started puberty blockers and had a prior gender dysphoria diagnosis. It says it's kind of undercounted, but that's that would be a big less than a thousand people a year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would guess you know hundreds of thousands at this, but I could be wrong. Million sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it does sound great if you're trying to delegitimize an entire group of people by using the think of the kids argument. And this whole think of the kids argument 
is nothing new. It has been used to deny civil rights to other marginalized people. Just recently, gay couples. Think of the kids. How will I explain gay marriage to my kids? But we need to be very clear when we're talking about trans issues. Conservatives are just using children as an emotional Trojan horse to sell people on transphobia for people who are trans of all ages. And he recently admitted that he supports a universal ban on gender-affirming care, a ban which would apply to adults. And he's been pretty open about that. No, adults should not be able to transition as well. That's not a straw man argument. That's what he says. He's pretty out and proud about how fundamentally anti-freedom he is. But this isn't surprising because this individual is a self-described theocratic fascist. So, of course, he is going to be against trans people. And any way that we can erase trans people out of existence by forcibly detransitioning them, by changing the law, or driving them out of the country with these anti-trans laws, that is a win to him. And again, I'm not being uncharitable to him. He says this. In fact, he responded to a trans woman pleading with lawmakers in Minnesota to protect her family by saying it is good that she wants to leave the country. Let's listen. As you may be aware, there's a torrent of damaging, ill-informed, and outright malicious legislation being introduced across the country, targeting transgender and gender expansive people broadly, but trans children in particular. It is our daily experience to be forced to keep track of which state is safe for us to visit. Minnesota has been overall very accepting and supportive of our family, but even then we don't feel 100% safe and assured that we will be able to get the gender affirming care that both of my kids need and deserve. Very recently, an amendment was proposed to House File 16 in Minnesota, which bans children's conversion therapy in an attempt to ban essential health care for transgender children. This happened in our state. Because of this, my trans partner and I frequently discuss plans to flee the country if these targeted, hateful bills keep being introduced or passed. This person is married to a trans person. And then, what do you know? Uh, they also have two children who, who just so happen to be trans. But remember, there's no social contagion aspect of this. And, and uh, well, certainly no one is turning children trans or encouraging them to be trans or planting these ideas in their head. No one is doing that. That's a conspiracy theory. And what, yet, yet what, what do you so often find? You so often find that uh, so-called gender expansive adults tend to have, quote unquote, gender expansive children. I just feel, I mean... You, you feel horrible for these kids. What chance do they have in the world? And that's what stops me from, you know, he, he says that, oh, well, we're going to, I want to flee the country. Well, if, if he himself flees, uh, and, and he's doing that, you know, in part in response to some of the laws that were, that, that are being passed around the country, then I consider that another great benefit of those laws. Except that he has kids he'd bring with him. And they're the real victims in all this. So his response to watching a trans woman plead with lawmakers to protect her family was good. If she leaves, that is a great benefit of these anti-trans laws. He's quite literally saying, I want to drive trans people out of the country. But that's just one of the things that he wants to do 
to eliminate trans people out of existence. Again, if you can forcibly detransition them and get them to kill themselves, that is a win for Matt Walsh. He's saying this. All you have to do is listen to him. He's a deeply hateful and mean person. In that same video, he went on to misgender her constantly. He compared her to Grimace, the McDonald's mascot. He's just deeply, deeply mean and bigoted. And he said that since she also has trans children, that's essentially evidence that social contagion is not a conspiracy theory and it's a real thing. And trans identities are further delegitimized by that fact. Now, listen, I don't know the particulars of that situation, but trans youth, not every single family accepts them. In fact, a lot of families reject them. This is why LGBTQ plus homelessness is higher than homelessness for straight youth and cis youth. So sometimes LGBTQ plus adults will adopt children who have been rejected from their families. And I don't even know if that's the situation, but it could be the situation. And statistically, it seems unlikely that you'd have two trans kids. But either way, the fact that these kids are trans is not the issue because being trans is perfectly valid and legitimate. And this family in the United States of America, a supposed free country, should be able to live the way that they want. But Matt Walsh is saying, no, they should live the way that I dictated. And if they refuse to comply with my demands as a theocratic fascist, then we will do everything we can to drive them out of the country or get them to kill themselves. He is saying this. So this isn't surprising, right? We all know this about Matt Walsh, but I think that he's really important because it's reaching a situation in this country where I don't think that it's hyperbolic to say what's being attempted is a genocide against trans people when you look at the laws and how increasingly they're shifting away from children and proposing bans on trans adults. Oklahoma proposed a ban on anyone under the age of 26, and that would force adults in that state to detransition if they've been who they were for years. So this is important because anytime somebody pushes back and says, no, it's not genocide, it's not eliminationist, you're being hyperbolic, all you have to do is show them Matt Walsh and that's confirmation that trans people, in fact, haven't been sounding the alarms enough. All of us haven't been sounding the alarms enough because really what's happening here is a genocide that's taking place in slow motion. And Matt Walsh isn't the only one who's being more explicit. More and more Republicans are being vocal and open about the ways in which they want to eliminate trans people out of existence. And you can do this in a number of ways. They've gotten creative in their transphobia. You can try to hide trans people away, force them to detransition or drive them out of the country, deny medically necessary life-saving care to trans youth so they kill themselves any way that they can eliminate this group of people from society. That's what conservatives want. So the next time somebody says, mm, it's not that serious, this is, this is nothing, this isn't a big deal, you're being hyperbolic, all you have to do is show them Matt Walsh. And that's evidence that it's not hyperbole to say that this is an attempted genocide. We should be sounding the alarms more because this is a community that has been already marginalized, has been already vulnerable but conservatives are exacerbating the issues that they've already been experienced. So we need to be vigilant and we need to understand what we're dealing with. And Matt Walsh is, I think, a good gauge as to how far we've fallen as a country and how much this group is targeted.
So most of you, I'm sure, have heard about the 7.8 magnitude earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria. And what made matters worse was the 7.5 magnitude aftershock that came after the initial earthquake. Now, they had more than 100 aftershock earthquakes following the initial earthquake. But a 7.5 magnitude aftershock is fairly uncommon. So it's disaster on top of disaster, followed by a rescue effort that's hindered by horrible weather conditions, and it's just genuinely catastrophic. Now, the initial death toll was just under 3,000, but as of today, the New York Times reports 4,300, although that is likely to rise, and that estimate is actually a more conservative estimate that I've seen. I've seen some numbers surpass 5,000, although right now it's very difficult to determine how many people have been affected, killed, injured, and whatnot. And um, as I film this video right now, the rescue effort is uh, going on. So the New York Times explains rescuers in Turkey and Syria worked overnight and in near freezing temperatures to comb through rubble in search of survivors after a powerful earthquake and aftershocks collapsed thousands of buildings, killed more than 4,300 people and raised the specter of a new humanitarian disaster in an area of the world already racked by war, a refugee crisis and deep economic troubles. The initial magnitude 7.8 earthquake hit at 4.17 a.m. local time on Monday, according to the United States Geological Survey, and was also felt in Cyprus, Egypt, Israel, and Lebanon. Hundreds of aftershocks, including an unusually strong 7.5 magnitude tremor, struck Turkey in the aftermath, the USGS said. The series of shocks was the deadliest to hit the country in more than 20 years. Now, let's look at this map here, courtesy of the New York Times. It kind of gives us a sense of how massive the initial earthquake was and the 7.5 magnitude aftershock as well. And as the article pointed out, multiple countries felt this earthquake. That's how massive it was. And it's really difficult to fathom just how destructive this earthquake was. I think that hearing the numbers don't really do it justice. So I do want to give you a sense of, as to how bad it was by looking at a couple of videos. One of these videos follows a Turkish reporter, and as he's filming, you see an aftershock hit and how devastating that is. <laughs> The sounds there, Max, are absolutely terrifying there. So the reporter here is saying as we were heading to the rubble to film search and rescue efforts, there were two consecutive aftershocks with a loud noise and the building you are seeing on my left was brought down to earth. There's lots of dust. This local resident here, he is covered in dust. It looks like a scene from a disaster movie. I can't imagine the terror that these individuals felt as they're already scrambling because they just experienced an earthquake, but then you get another aftershock and then you see buildings collapse around you. It's just genuinely chilling. Now, one more video that I want to play for you, uh, followed with some information by CNN. They kind of update you on some of the individuals that they found. And um, it's it's heartbreaking, but I think that this is important that we uh, we watch. More than 120 aftershocks hit after the earthquake, including one almost as powerful as the initial quake itself. Buildings crumble to the ground with people fear trapped inside. Others nearby having to run for their lives. Rescuers trying to reach those who are stuck. 
under piles of concrete and debris, like this little boy in northern Syria. You can just make him out in this video here, buried under the wreckage. Thankfully, he was pulled to safety. Rescuers also pulling this little girl from the debris in another Syrian city. The U.S. and other countries are offering whatever help they can, and President Biden said he has directed his team to provide any and all assistance immediately. Yeah, really, really devastating. And it's it's nice to see them finding survivors, you know, finding the little girl from the rubble obviously was very, very nice to see. The problem is, you know, how many disabilities will she have because of this? You know, she... Um, was probably injured on top of that lifelong trauma. So it's not just like the initial destruction that this causes. There's going to be a lifelong impact that this has loved ones that have been taken from individuals. And it's just very, very sad. Um, one important thing to point out is, as NPR explains here, that civil engineers say that outdated building techniques used in both Syria and Turkey essentially assure disaster with multi-story buildings just pancaking, which is the way that they referred to it. And so this is something that every single country has to take into account, right? Because earthquakes can happen anywhere. It happened to Turkey. It could happen where I live. It can happen where you live. So building buildings have to be built in a way so that way they can absorb these types of earthquakes. And not every single building is going to hold up with an earthquake that big, especially. But these are things that you have to take into consideration. Make sure that there's regulation so companies aren't cutting corners and whatnot. But that going forward is something that I'm sure that they're thinking about in the future. Currently, they're just focused on the rescue effort because this is a massive, massive effort, as you can imagine. Now, Twitter user Ja Rain tweeted at massive streamers like Hassan and Mr. Beast asking for help since thousands of peoples are going to need tents, heaters, blankets, diapers, and food, of course. Now, Hassan actually responded to that saying, absolutely devastating. I was in Istanbul in 1999, which was a 7.6 earthquake quake this was a 7.8 i will do everything i can to help and that he absolutely did by raising more than seven hundred thousand dollars in a single day and for the second day in a row he's raising money once again and at the time that i filmed this he is at seven hundred thirty thousand. i think that by the end of the day it's not implausible to think that his audience will surpass uh give enough donations so that way they surpass 1 million, which is really encouraging to see. And of course, Hassan Piker is an individual who is Turkish. Um, so it's nice to see, you know, everyone come together, put aside politics, put aside geopolitical issues and conflicts, and just acknowledge that this is a very human thing. Like experiencing this level of destruction, it's it's something that none of us ever want to deal with, but we all could possibly experience in our lifetimes. So to have the world come together, various communities come together, streamers come together and try to raise funds for this effort is really encouraging to see. And it's kind of like the silver lining where this type of disaster fo fosters at least a small level of solidarity amongst fellow humans but either way it's just catastrophic and my heart goes out to the people of turkey and syria and all of those who are affected um as the new york times article pointed out people in syria have already been dealing with a lot for a long time it's a war-torn country so to have this added on top of everything that they were already experiencing i just it's a level of destruction that is almost incomprehensible. Like literally, I don't think that our brains can actually process that level, that scale 
of a disaster, right? So, um, yeah, I will link you to Hassan's donation link down below. And I hope that there's more money raised for this because they're going to need all the help that they can get. But priority number one right now, of course, is making sure that they save as many lives as possible. So my heart goes out to anyone who's affected. And I, I just hope that um, the weather eases up so that way they're more successful at finding survivors. The House Oversight Committee held a hearing with former Twitter executives to determine Twitter's role in the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story in 2020. And the goal for Republicans here was to suss out whether or not the Biden administration had directed Twitter to take action and censor the story in order to demonstrate that Twitter executives were in cahoots with the Biden administration. And in fact, they were ready to rock our socks off because Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted out, I didn't buy Twitter, but I'm about to own some former Twitter executives. Tune in to the GOP oversight now. Mm. Unfortunately for Republicans, that did not happen. They did not own former Twitter executives. In fact, this entire debacle ended up blowing up in their face royally in part due to a tweet made by Chrissy Teigen in 2019. This tweet in particular, where she called President Donald Trump a, quote, pussy ass bitch in response to him attacking her and her husband for not giving him credit for his criminal justice bill. And the reason why that tweet in particular is so important is because that tweet demonstrates that Trump's administration crossed a line that Republicans say should never be crossed. The government should never direct social media to censor a tweet. But in fact, that is exactly what the Trump administration did. Let's watch the part where this came up. My, 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 what happens when you hold a hearing and you can't prove your point? <laughs> um, we heard from the chairman in his opening statement that uh, it's wrong for government to call Twitter and say, take down a tweet. Did I hear that correct, Mr. Roth? That was my understanding, yes. Yeah. On September 8th, 2019, at 11, 11 p.m., Donald Trump heckled two celebrities on Twitter, uh, John Legend and his wife, Chrissy Tagan, and referred to them as the musician John Legend and his filthy-mouthed wife, unquote. Ms. Tagan responded to that email at 12.17 a.m., and, and according to notes from a conversation with you, Ms. Navarroli's counsel, your counsel, the White House almost immediately thereafter contacted Twitter to demand the tweet be taken down. Is that accurate? Thank you for the question. In my role, I was not responsible for receiving any sort of request from the government. However, what I was privy to was my supervisors letting us know that we had received something along those lines or something of a request. And in that particular instance, I do remember hearing that we had received a request from the White House to make sure that we evaluated this tweet and that they wanted it to come down because it was a derogatory statement uh, uh, directed uh, uh, towards uh, uh, the president. They wanted it to come down. They made that request. To my recollection, yes. I thought that was an inappropriate action by a government official, let alone the White House. But it wasn't Joe Biden about his son's laptop. It was Donald Trump because he didn't like what Chrissy Teigen had to say about him. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. My, my, my. Yeah. So let me remind you that the goal for Republicans was to prove 
that Twitter was oftentimes colluding with Democrats to censor conservatives, hence the conservative bias that they oftentimes claim is a thing. But what ended up happening was that they just got evidence that Trump himself was making requests to censor people who were being mean to him. Now, as this meeting took place, Rolling Stone published this article, which reads, Twitter kept entire database of Republican requests to censor posts. Elon Musk's Twitter files focus on Democrats, but former administration officials and Twitter employees say Trump's team and other Republicans routinely demanded posts to be taken down. And the authors go on to explain, former Trump administration officials and Twitter employees tell Rolling Stone that the White House's Teagan tweet demand was hardly an isolated incident. The Trump administration and its allied Republicans in Congress routinely routinely asked Twitter to take down posts they objected to. The exact behavior that they're claiming makes President Biden, the Democrats, and Twitter complicit in an anti-free speech conspiracy to muzzle conservatives online. The authors continue, the obvious irony here is, the sources note, that Republican leaders and elected officials have long been committing precisely the kind of government interference that they are now investigating, fundraising off of, and accusing Democrats and the so-called anti-Trump deep state of perpetrating some of the loudest conservative and MAGA voices on Capitol Hill who've been endlessly demanding taxpayer-funded high-profile investigations into big tech bias and collusion were themselves engaged in the behavior they now claim is colluding. Now, the authors of this article state that this whole database of removal requests don't come exclusively from Republicans. That's not the point that they're trying to make. They also come from the offices of powerful Democrats, too. But... What they say is that this is a common phenomenon. Now, let me just say for the record that I don't think that any government official should be doing more than reporting tweets. If they specifically reach out to Twitter, I think that that crosses a line. I think that that is too far. Unless there's a direct threat of violence or a death threat or ongoing harassment, I don't think that Democrats or Republicans and their staffers should be trying to get in contact with Twitter to get them to delete tweets. I think that that's wrong. But the question of whether or not Biden himself has done what Trump did, well, the answer is no, as was demonstrated in this moment where Connolly asked these former Twitter officials whether or not uh, Biden engaged in this. You ever think it's appropriate for the president of the United States to direct or otherwise influence a social media company to take down its content? I think it's a very slippery slope. Mr. Roth, Ms. Gaddy, Mr. Baker, any evidence that Joe Biden's ever done that? Certainly none that I'm aware of, no. I don't recall anything like that. I'm sorry, the, the, the President Biden did what, sir? Has Joe Biden ever called Twitter, to your knowledge, or his White House at his behest to take down content or urge you to take down content? I don't know the answer to that question, sir. Well, I, I'm going to have to conclude at least from three of the four. You don't know. There's no evidence he's ever done that. But there's plenty of evidence Donald J. Trump tried to do that. And um, if we're going to have a hearing about the misuse of social media and the intrusion of government in the content on social media, we've got an environment-rich target, but it's not Joe Biden. 
it's Donald J. Trump. And of course, we don't want to talk about that. He's exactly right. The GOP's hypocrisy was on full display, but we're in an era in politics where they essentially wear that hypocrisy like a badge of honor. So it's not really surprising. It's just that when they're exposed in this this uh, public fashion, you would expect them to be a little bit humble or show a little bit more humility, but of course not. Now, it's not just that Trump made censorship requests. This whole conservative bias idea is hogwash considering Trump was quite literally given favorable treatment as was discussed by the former Twitter officials who were testifying. At my time at Twitter, the former president Donald Trump's account was the only account that I did not have access to. Okay, so we know that there weren't individual actors running around Twitter setting off alarms every other day. Is that correct? Not to my knowledge, no. Okay. Yeah. So Trump was given special treatment, treatment that you don't get, treatment that I don't get. But yet they cry about conservative bias. And it's not just that there isn't a conservative bias. Conservatives are given preferential treatment on Twitter. Libs of TikTok, it was just discovered a couple of weeks ago inadvertently thanks to the Twitter files that they weren't allowed to be banned. I mean, this was just discovered and yet they're still claiming, nope, there's a conservative bias. It's just so ridiculous. Republicans are frauds and I think that this hearing here really demonstrated that. But of course, the people who need to see this, Republican voters, they're not going to pay attention and they'll just dismiss it or say, yeah, well, I don't care about this because they're going after the woke mafia or whatever. It's just ridiculous. Now, there's an entire thread on Twitter by Aaron Rupar who shows you some of these highlights here, but I just want to play a, a quick clip where Democrats go further in nailing the GOP's balls to the wall here. I, I'm getting to feel like a little bad for the majority. Like, I, I I just feel guilty because you guys have come today to try to prove that the Biden administration in coordination with Twitter is impeaching, <coughs> impugning free speech. And the problem is, is that Donald Trump, he, he is just this thing that hangs around your neck because at every turn, he undermines whatever credibility you want to have on this subject. I mean, Donald Trump and his administration, it's been proven, reached out to Twitter to take down tweets that got under his skin. The tough guy, Donald Trump, right? He got called the B word. Let's reach out to Twitter. Let's get the tweet taken down. You guys have no credibility. You have none. I mean, Mr. Chairman, I would just use the second to ask unanimous consent to submit for the record an extraordinary article just published called Twitter kept entire database of Republican requests to censor posts uh, published on February 8th. It was just published by Rolling Stone. So for everybody's uh, reading enjoyment, if people think it was biased against uh, conservatives, this would lead us to believe it was definitely biased against liberals and progressives. Uh, I understand my colleagues on the other side of the aisle want to be victims so very badly. That jab there from Summer Lee was great, so I had to include it there. And as you saw, Jamie Raskin had entered the Rolling Stone article that we just read into the public record. So now everyone can see that there is evidence that there is a database of censorship requests from the Republican Party. And we're not just talking about Republicans clicking report 
on tweets as you and I do. We're talking about them reaching out to Twitter and saying, hey, these tweets should be taken down because they violate your TOS, misinformation, disinformation. Republicans are making these claims. So they're complete hypocrites. But I feel like that is just obvious at this point in time. Now, I do want to show a quick clip. This this is what I'd like to call the lowlights from uh, this hearing, and there's a lot more, but these two individuals that we're going to watch stood out to me just because of the level of grandstanding that we saw. It was embarrassing, and honestly, they should get some sort of award for acting here, but nonetheless, let's watch. And let me just say, I'm not angry for myself. I'm not angry because I was silenced. I can reach out to Elon and to his staff, and I can see what's happened, and I can sit here today and hold you all in account. I am angry for the millions of Americans who were silenced because of your decisions, because of your actions, because of your collusion with the federal government. They can't reach out to Elon. They can't sit here today and hold you into account. We don't know where the FBI ends and Twitter begins. You ladies and gentlemen interfered with the United States of America 2020 presidential election, knowingly and willingly. That's the bad news. It's going to get worse because this is the investigation part. Later comes the arrest part. Your attorneys are familiar with that. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to spend five hours with these ladies and gentlemen during depositions surely yet to come. But for right now, I'll yield the balance of my time to my colleague, Mr. Jordan. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Clay Higgins there just seriously said that these Twitter officials were going to be arrested because their censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story was tantamount to interference in the 2020 election. Listen, I have stated this before. I think that it was wrong for social media to censor that story. But to suggest that that was tantamount to election interference is genuinely comical. Like, even if that story were not censored, would it have made a difference? I think most people by that time had already made up their mind, right? But for him to make this suggestion and not only say that, but take it a step further and, uh, you know, imply that they're going to be arrested, just so unhinged. And Lauren Boebert, she is, she's so phony. Oh, I don't actually care. I could just reach out to Elon Musk myself, humble brag, if I get censored. But the millions of conservatives, they get censored and will somebody think about them? Like she should have just brought out the waterworks, but she was going for the whole anger character that she was playing there. Like they're such phonies, they're such frauds. But regardless of how they act, the fact remains that they got exposed during this hearing. And I think that Democrats, I don't give them much credit for going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Republicans when it comes to politics and strategy. But here, they played their cards well, and they backed Republicans into a corner, and this hearing did not go well for them. So I think that it's time for us to once and for all put this notion that there's conservative bias on Twitter to rest, right? And if there's any bias on Twitter now, it's very clearly a bias against the left and progressives. But conservatives aren't going to care about that. And also one thing to point out here, I'd be remiss to not talk about the Twitter files and the way in which it was specifically curated for journalists by Elon Musk and individuals like Matt Taibbi, who chose to uncritically publish what Elon Musk wanted him to. That's not journalism. That's him being a stenographer to power. That right there is propaganda, because in the event Elon Musk really wanted to get to the bottom of bias on Twitter, you just take all the files 
and you give them to journalists and you let them choose what they do and don't publish. This is what WikiLeaks did with the Hillary Clinton emails. This is what journalists should accept and nothing less. But, you know, when, you, when you've got this hot scoop and you want to raise your profile and clout with the right, you do what Matt Taibbi did here. But I mean, if the Twitter files were open, then perhaps we'd see that these censorship requests do indeed come from Republicans, right? So you, we're getting one side of the story, and as a result, Elon Musk was essentially allowing this victim narrative for the right, this biased narrative for the right, to proliferate. When, as we now know, it's not just bullshit, but the opposite is true. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.